Well, we are continuing on in a teaching series in which we're exploring what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, that is, this teaching that comes to us in the Gospel of Matthew uh, by the person of Jesus. And um, it's been, let me just say, it's been personally just challenging for me to read the words of Jesus in this weeks together and in these months that we've been in this passage to just, just wonder to myself personally, like, am I, am I following Jesus? Does my discipleship look like this? Does my life, is it actually affected and reshaped and reformed according to the teachings of Jesus? Or if Jesus never said any of these things, would my life just be what it is still today, right? Does Jesus' words actually impact me? Um, and so I hope that it's been edifying to you as well. But our text this morning comes out of Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 19 through 24. It's perhaps one of the most famous lines that we have in all of Jesus' teaching is found here in verse 21. Uh, But the essence of this chapter, or of these verses, uh, or this passage, really, it's really good for us as American Christians in particular to hear this particular teaching from Jesus. And so let's Hear from Jesus this morning, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. I'm reading the New International Version. Jesus teaches us this. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For... Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Turn to someone around you and say, you need to define the relationship. No? Turn to somebody around you and say, you need to define the relationship. Tell them, tell the people in your pews, you need to define the relationship. That's funny. We're gonna be more interactive from now on, apparently. It can be perhaps... One of the most uncomfortable moments in any relationship that you might find yourself in. If you've ever dated or you're currently dating or if you're married, you can think back to the time when you were dating your spouse. But it's that moment where you've been on a few dates, you've been on a number of dates, perhaps things are going well and it's about a month or so in and you find your affection and your enthusiasm and excitement to be around this person, to be increasing and growing. And you begin to wonder, and it begins sort of just as a a simple thought in the back of your mind. You begin to wonder, where is this thing going, right? Where is this relationship going? And as you've been around this person and you're with your family and your friends and you're introducing your significant other to people perhaps for the first time, you never quite know what to say, right? Is this my friend page or is this my girlfriend page? And you wonder, like, when am I supposed to sort of throw that title of girlfriend onto her as I'm introducing her to people, and you just begin to wonder, I wonder where this thing is going, right? 
are we friends? Are we more than friends? I think we're more than friends, but I'm not quite sure. Are we going steady? I think generations used to say back in the day when I was in junior high, are we going out is what we used to say. Are we exclusive? Or when I was in college, the question was, are we Facebook official or not, right? But it's just this way of sort of defining the relationship. And as your friends and family begin to wonder, what's going on with this little romantic interest thing that you have, you, you begin to want to actually have the conversation with that person. What are we? What are we doing here, right? Or in popular culture, this is called the DTR, for those of you who are a little older, or define the relationship talk, the DTR. See, this talk happened really early on with Paige and I when we started dating. We were just four months into dating when I moved up to Santa Barbara, and she was still finishing her undergraduate studies at Azusa Pacific University. And we had decided at the time, you never know if that's a good decision or a bad decision, that we were going to try and do the long distance thing. We're going to exert all the energy that we needed to to make this relationship work. In hindsight, that was a great decision on our part, right? If it wouldn't have worked out, it would have been quite a bummer. But we had to have that talk very early on. Are we going to pursue something a little bit more committed than what it was with this distance here? And those talks, when you engage that conversation with that someone for the first time, can be very uncomfortable, the what are you talk, because you're not quite sure if you're on the same page with them. But the, the talk sort of forces you into sort of critically thinking about emotions that you've been following without much reflection. You just know that you love being around this person, that you enjoy being around them, that there's an excitement, that you kind of get really nervous before you like touch, touch each other or hug or whatever, right? There's just this enthusiasm about being with this person, but the talk that you have with them forces you to ask questions like this, like how much does this person actually mean to me? How serious am I about this relationship? How committed am I willing to be to this person at this point in time? Am I ready to ditch all other potential dating options at this point for this one person? But these talks, these conversations in determining the relationship can be really uncomfortable for another reason. That is, as a consequence of defining your relationship with this person, you sort of define your relationship with everybody else in the world, right? Is that as you say, I'm going to be committed to you, you are defining your relationship with everybody else, that they are just going to be your friends. That they will never be quite as close to you as this person is close to you. That everybody's always going to be second place to this one that I've decided that I am committing myself to. There's no future to be considered with anybody else. There's no commitment that's going to be greater to anybody else except for this one person in defining the relationship with Paige, I define the relationship with everybody else. They're always going to be second place to her. And in our text this morning, Jesus lays it out plain to us. He says to his disciples, you need to define the relationship with me just a little bit. You can't be devoted to me and to something else. You cannot be committed to me and to something else. And what we discover, that to define our relationship with Jesus, we have to define our relationship to our stuff. It's interesting. In order to define the relationship with Jesus, we have to define our relationship to our possessions, to our wealth, to our stuff. Our stuff, as it turns out, can be a tremendous hindrance to our following Jesus. Our stuff, 
Our possessions, our money, our things can be a huge barrier between our relationship, our personal relationship with Jesus himself. At the beginning of John's gospel, we see early on that there's this excitement around the person of Jesus. There's an enthusiasm that's sort of building around them. There's an attraction and a curiosity that people have with Jesus early on in his ministry. And early on in the gospel, there's this scene where two guys begin to follow Jesus. They begin to do the follow the leader type of a thing with Jesus. They are physically walking behind Jesus. See, they've been told that, the, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that Jesus is God's chosen one who has come to save the world and to bring full life and to usher in the kingdom of God into the world. And one day they see this guy walking down the street, just walking down the street. Kind of like how if we saw celebrities or you see celebrities walking around the streets, there's people who are sort of following them, trying to take selfies with them, whatever it is, right? People are doing this with Jesus because he is full on celebrity status. And so they begin to follow him. And they begin to follow him hoping that they might become one of, one of his disciples. If you don't know what a disciple is, you might think of them as religious groupies, right? They were just the religious groupies of his day. They, they would travel around a religious teacher to try and learn everything that that person knew and to learn their way of life. And so these two guys in the Gospel of John start following Jesus. They're his religious groupies, so to speak. And as Jesus notices their physical presence with him, he turns to them and he asks a really simple question. He asks them this question, what do you want? What do you want? Now, Jesus' question isn't a way of him asking, like, can I help you? (laughs) Like, what's going on? Are you lost? Are you looking for a local coffee shop? No, this is not at the essence or the root of Jesus' question. It's at the heart of his question is this, is what is it that you desire? What do you want? What are the desires of your heart in following me? And it turns out, it turns out that what you want, what you desire, is a critical matter for those who want to follow Jesus. It's really interesting that Jesus doesn't ask him, he doesn't ask these first disciples, what do you believe? Who do you say I am? What creedal statements, what theological statements, what propositional statements do you believe about God? What is your particular view of the Old Testament and the scriptures? Do you live a morally upright life? Would people say that you're a good person? Tell me about your prayer life. Jesus doesn't ask any of these things. Those are the things that we ask people. They're the questions that we make primary in the church today. Do you believe the right things And do you live the right way? Those are our questions, but they aren't the questions that Jesus asked his first disciples. Jesus asked them a very simple question. What do you want? What are the desires of your heart? You see, following Jesus essentially, or it begins as a matter of the heart. See, the passage that we read this morning sort of illuminates this reality. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates it in the message is he, he writes this in verse 21, or he translates it this way. He says, the place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. 
The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being. That is, what you want, what you desire, what you value, what you treasure informs and directs the trajectory of your life, of where you'll end up in your life. And this is perhaps the reason why the great commandment that Jesus gives to us in the Gospels, love the Lord your God, it doesn't begin with love him with your mind. Love them with the things that you believe. Love them with the things that you think. It doesn't begin that way. It begins this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and then your mind and then your strength or the way that you live. But essentially, it begins with this. Do you desire in your heart the ways and the things of God and the kingdom of God? What do you want See, what you want, what you treasure, what you love matters. And as Bonhoeffer writes it, he says, the life of discipleship can only be maintained so long as nothing is allowed to come between Christ and ourselves. You see, what often comes between Christ and his disciples is not what we believe. I can tell you, I've had very few conversations where somebody was like, hey, you know the sort of nuance to pneumatology, that I just can't wrap my mind around that part of theology. Most of us don't even know what pneumatology is, right? It's the study of the Holy Spirit. But we, we, nobody has that problem. Nobody says, hey, you know the sort of eschatology of the church that we get in the scriptures and how that all, I mean, that's just becoming between me and Jesus. This is not how it works in, in our lives or in the church or in the world. The problem always is I love something more than I love Jesus. I love something more than I love Jesus. And at its essence, discipleship and the way of Jesus is a heart issue. And so the question to you this morning is what do you want? What do you want? See, the difficulty of the heart is that we don't always love the things that we think we love. We don't always love the things that we think we love. We talked about this a little bit last week and how we consider that our motives aren't always sort of uh, clear to us. That is, we don't, we're not always self-aware of what our motivations are for the things that we do. And this is true also of the things that we love. I have often said to Paige, who she's not here right now. She's trying to, she starts school this week, by the way. I'll just kind of throw this out there. And so she's hanging out with Levi and our parents uh, this weekend. So this is why I'm a bachelor and it's a horrible existence and I'm reminded why I got married. But but I've often said to Paige, I've often said to Paige that I love waking up really early in the morning. I love it. I've never once regretted waking up early in the morning. It's quiet and still, and that calmness, it sort of creates a palpable sense of the potential that the day has, right? I feel like I'm more productive. I feel more alert. I feel like more accomplished in my day when I wake up at like, 4.30 or 5 in the morning, I'm like, man, I'm killing this day right now. I love to wake up early, like really early, and I'm trying to do that regularly. The only problem is I also love to sleep. I love to sleep. I love to lay under the covers and the comforter in those cold early morning hours. I love snoozing my phone like three, four, five, six times. <laughs> Paige hates that. And telling myself every time, like, oh, next time it goes off, I'll wake up. And then next time it goes off, I'll wake up. I love doing that. And all this really is a, a result of the fact that I love staying up late at night. 
Like I'm a night owl naturally. Like I would be my most productive self at like midnight or like one o'clock in the morning. I love staying up late. But when these two loves come into conflict, the love to wake up early and the love to stay up late, when they come into conflict, Paige will tell you there's always one victor. (laughs) And it's not waking up early. It is staying up late and sleeping in a little bit later. These two loves are in conflict with one another. And so often our lack of understanding of what we love is a failure to realize the things that we love are in conflict with one another. And the Christian failure to identify how our love of wealth and possessions is in conflict with our love for Jesus is problematic. Because at the end of the day, Jesus says we will end up serving one of these things over the other. Either we will stay up late or we will wake up early. Either we will spend our lives focused on acquiring as much wealth and stuff as we possibly can, or we will spend our lives following Jesus in the way of discipleship. This is essentially the, what's really fascinating, let me say, about this question is Jesus doesn't say you either serve me or the devil, right? That's an obvious thing. That's an obvious choice that we would make. Are you to serve God, Jesus, or the devil, That's how we think that the battle is. That's not the battle that Jesus is illuminating here in this text. He says the battle is in your heart. And the battle, interestingly enough, is between Jesus and your stuff. And who do you love? Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. You cannot do it. In his book, You Are What You Love, which I totally ripped my sermon title from his book, James K.A. Smith, he's a sort of philosopher and theologian scholar, he writes this, he says that our hearts are formed by two things, imitation and practice. Our hearts are formed by imitation and practice. And in this book, he uses the experience of shopping as an example for how our hearts have been formed by the world to love our stuff, to love our wealth, to love our possessions. You see, we see the clothing ads and the commercials and the models in them, they're always attractive, right? Usually, at least moderately attractive, not too attractive because then it would feel too distant from you personally, potentially. You guys are all attractive, so you wouldn't feel that. But some of us, we would feel that way. And they're often, <laughs> they're often happy and laughing, right? Because they're, they're having a good time in their lives. And they're usually not alone. They're usually like with friends and it's like, man, they're probably pretty close. They're like best friends up in that ad. And they're, the message is so subtle that sometimes we can barely tell that we're receiving it. The message is this, wear these clothes and the rest of this image can be yours. You can be happy you will have confidence that will produce friendships and relationships. And it's silly to say that out loud, right? That's why marketers don't say it out loud. They show it to you in an image instead. But it's the one that they're telling you and communicating to you or the way Steve Jobs once said it. He said it this way. He said, people don't know what they want until you show it to them. People don't know what they want until you show it to them. And when we see it, we know we have to imitate it. We want that thing there. And so we buy it, and we buy, and we buy, and we buy, and we buy. The newest, the latest, the greatest, the best, 
And when the new product comes out, we have to upgrade, right? Upgrade, by the way, is just a modern way of saying moth and vermin have destroyed this thing. So you got to upgrade, right? The imitation and practice of seeing things and buying things, 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 it shaped our hearts so that we love our stuff. We see it, we buy it. We see it, we buy it. And this stands in the way of Jesus and our following him. And it stands in contrast to the way of the kingdom of God. But this practice is why Americans spend more money on fashion accessories every year than they do on college tuition. It's the reason why our kids make up 3% of the population in the world but have 40% of the toys Levi has at least 35% of those toys in our house. It shaped our hearts and it shaped our lives. But John Wesley says the danger in this, in this type of consumerism and acquiring of wealth and possessions, he says the danger is this, is that if we waste our money, we're not only guilty of wasting a resource which God has given us, but we do ourselves a further harm. We turn this useful resource into a powerful means of corrupting ourselves. That is, we further increase in our purchasing the insatiable desire that we need to have more and more and more and more because it's never enough. You never have enough. This is one of, by the way, I hope my parents don't listen to this or my in-laws because that would be really bad, but sort of insight into our family. We we as parents are getting concerned to a certain level that grandparents spoiling their grandchild, the only one that they have, so they're like desperate to spoil him. They're only ever increasing his desire for more and more and more. And this is what this practice of see it, buy it, see it, buy it creates. So you never get to the end of that cycle. And so if we're going to live into the way of Jesus, to serve and love God, we need a new kind of practice to form or reform, I should say, our hearts. And reforming our hearts so that we want and desire and treasure the kingdom of God, it requires that we as disciples practice two things, simplicity and generosity. Simplicity and generosity. The disciples of Jesus, we as a church, we need to practice living simple lives and generous lives. One of the unfortunate ways that people have interpreted Jesus' teaching on wealth and possessions is to say that Jesus universally instructs all of his disciples to do what he instructed the rich young ruler. Do you remember this story? There's a story where there's a rich man who comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you got to keep all the commandments. God's like, done. I'm the man. I'm like the religious. I grew up in the church. I know how to do all this stuff. And then Jesus tells him, sell all of your stuff, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And we have, as a church, unfortunately interpreted that to mean like, well, you can't be rich in a Christian. You can't have stuff and also follow in the way of Jesus. But this is not Jesus's instruction to us universally. It was the instruction to that one individual in particular The interpretation that we need to get rid of all of our stuff, it creates all sorts of practical problems, right? How do we feed ourselves if we have no money, if we gave it all away to the poor? How do we clothe ourselves? How do we have a home for our children if we don't have any money? We've given it all away. 
What do we do about our retirement and care for ourselves at the end of our lives? You see, understanding Jesus' view of, of money and wealth this way, it's, it's, it's foolish. And what, what it's done for so many of us, we read that story and we're like, Jesus has nothing to say about money and finances that's practical, so I'm just going to live in the world. But this isn't, this interpretation isn't what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that when it comes to money, the problem is a matter of the heart, and we have to address that issue. And his disciples need to define their relationship that they have with their stuff. Are they a slave to their possessions, or are their possessions a slave to them in their hearts? And we make our possessions, our stuff, a slave to us by living simply. That is, we use our resources certainly to pay off our debts. We use our money and our resources to meet our physical needs. We use them to meet the physical needs of those who we care for. We use them to maintain healthy businesses. We use them to plan for the future, to be wise stewards of these resources. But beyond that, we practice simplicity. That is, we don't spend on the unnecessary upgrades and luxuries in life all of the time. Practicing practicing simplicity requires that we ask this question over and over and over again in our lives. Is this a need or a want? Is this a need or a want? And the disciple of Jesus uses the resources that they have to meet their needs, but they do not use their resources to meet all of their wants. We have to live simply. The second thing that we have to practice, though, is generosity. That is, we need to utilize our resources to meet the needs of those who are in our community and in the world. For some of us, generosity is a sharing of our finances. For others, it might be a sharing of our time. See, one of the things I don't want to get confused about this particular passage is as if Jesus' teaching here about treasures is for those who have a lot, because that's not always the case. You know you can have very little and value it more than you value Jesus. You can have very little and love it more than you love Jesus. And so this practice of generosity is for all of us to form and reform our hearts so that we follow in the way of Jesus and the way of kingdom of God rather than the ways of this world. You see, the issues of the heart they transcend these sort of socioeconomic barriers. And the idea for all of us is to cultivate a heart that is trying to meet the needs of those who are around us. And so whatever it is that you have to give in excess, you need to do so generously. G.K. Chesterton is an English philosopher and theologian. And he once wrote this. He said... There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Let me read that again. It's so good. There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. And practicing simplicity of life and generosity cultivates a heart that desires less. And desires more of the way of Jesus. One of the things that I did, that I encourage all of you to do, when I first started here in the church just a few months ago, was I had Lori pull out the board minutes from the past two to three years. 
of all of the meetings that the board has had. And I read through all of them. And let me tell you, it was a thrilling endeavor to read those board minutes. But the hope for me was, I wanted to see like what was important to this church. What are the things that get placed on agendas? What are the things that we as a board felt like we needed to debate and think and stew over? Because those things are the things that are actually important. They're not the things that we say are important. They're the things that are actually important, the things that you actually do. And one of the things that jumped off the pages to me in those minutes was that this church is a generous church. That this church cares for the people in its own body who have needs. This church supports one another financially when people are in hardship and they do it with compassion and they do it regularly. And this, if you didn't know this, this might shock some of you, this is rare in the church. This is rare in churches that I've served in where people felt like they could come to their own faith community and say, hey, I have a need, can you help me? And the church is like, yeah, we'll do that. We are all in this together. And as I read through those things, I remember reading through them and walking out of my office and saying to Lori, like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in a church before. You guys actually care for one another financially. You don't just say it in words. You don't just have a greeting. You don't just like, hey, yeah, we're a very accepting church and we love each other. Like, you actually talk about it and this is a value that's in this body. This is an amazing, amazing thing. And one, I want to say, church, good job. Good job being Jesus to one another when there is need and practicing generosity. That is a beautiful thing. And what I want to say to us this morning going forward is that we have to continue in this way of simplicity and generosity in our lives. The image that kept coming to mind was if you were walking up a hill and pushing a really large boulder up it, okay? Most of you are like, yeah, I do that most weeks, most weekends, I just push boulders up hills. But the thing about pushing an object uphill is that it requires constant sort of energy and focus to get that thing going and to keep it rolling uphill. And as soon as you stop, it just, all of that work that you've done, just totally gone, right? And we as a church, we have to continue to push the boulder up the hill. We gotta continue to be a people who are generous and live simply, if we're going to follow in the way of Jesus and cultivate hearts that love him and his kingdom. Money and stuff have never been the issue when it comes to following Jesus. The issues have always come from the heart of the believers in relationship to their stuff. And we as a church, we have to continually define the relationship with our stuff over and over and over again because we live in a world that is trying to shape and form our hearts so that we love our stuff. But if we don't define the relationship with our stuff, we can never define our relationship with Jesus. And so the question comes to you this morning, church, what do you want truly in your hearts? What do you want? The thing about, I'll end here, the thing about the relationship that I have with Paige is one, it certainly has made us entirely exclusive, right? <laughs> like I just don't want anything else. My wife is a freaking rock star and I am the most fortunate man in the world to be her husband. 
But in forgoing the loss of all those other relationships, I have no regrets. It doesn't matter at all. And we, as followers of Jesus, have to get to the point (laughs) where our devotion and love for him and his kingdom and his way is so great and we appreciate it so much that all of the loss of stuff that we could have had, it just doesn't matter because we have Jesus and his kingdom in the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, sometimes the most obvious teachings, the simple ones, are the easiest to look over but the most profound and formative in our lives. And we confess, God, that we love our stuff. We love our new phones. We love our new clothes. We love our new cars. We love the remodeling that we do in our homes. We love all of it. We also confess, God, that these, at times, have come into conflict with our affection for you that we have oftentimes decided to be a consumer rather than to be generous. And as we as a church continue in our life together, God, ask that you would give us great confidence in the reward that is available to us because we value the right things. Free our hearts from the things that grip our lives in the world that we might be freed up to serve and participate in your kingdom in new and fresh ways this day. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Church, as you go from this place, may you discover in your generosity and your simplicity of life the treasure that is the kingdom of God in the world. May you value that above all things. Go in his peace. Amen.